And we're live. Welcome back to another episode of the Wheelie Podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Micah Toll, and I'm joined again by Electrics Seth Weindrobe. How's it going, Seth? I'm good. Awesome. And we have a bunch of new e-bike-related stories. Uh, we were gone last episode, so we're going to catch up with all of the latest and most popular e-bike-related stories from the past month. That covers everything um, from a hot debate on how e-bikes should be incorporated into the right to repair, whether we should let people tinker around with their e-bikes. Uh, Electra from Trek has a new electric moped style bike, which is pretty awesome looking, if you ask me. Uh, new York City is going to replace a number of its delivery trucks with essentially four-wheeled cargo e-bikes that look like mini trucks with bicycle pedals. Um, there's an interesting story on how recent Muller is planning to get rid of its conventional bike boxes, which didn't sound interesting to me at first, but turned out to be fascinating. Um, there's uh, another sort of odd story out of Amsterdam where they found that a certain type of e-bike has a 90% chance of theft, and so they're no longer insuring those types of bikes. Uh, and then we've got a couple sort of odd stories to finish it up. There is a really neat-looking three-wheeled, streamlined electric scooter that we're going to cover. And last but not least, I personally am going on a bit of an adventure buying a super weird China Direct e-bike from Indiegogo. So we're going to share that as well. Uh, but where are we starting off this week, Seth? All right. Why e-bike companies are fighting to stop riders from repairing their electric bikes. I cannot believe how controversial this is. I mean, I knew going in there would be strong opinions, but uh, boy, was there a lot of back and forth in the comments section. So uh, this article basically covered how um, the advocacy group People for Bikes has partnered up with a number of electric bike companies to um, lobby on behalf of having electric bikes, or at least their batteries, excluded from the right to repair. And so for anyone who's not familiar with, with right to repair, and I hope I, I get this correct myself, but essentially it's the idea that um, manufacturers shouldn't be able to have a monopoly over the repair of the devices that when a consumer buys something, whether it's a, you know, a watch, a scale, anything, that uh, the manufacturer should make it possible for people to repair their own gear, whether that's you know, not using um, tools or parts that are uh, unaccessible to the average person or by providing schematics and, and instructions to get in and fix stuff. And for a lot of products, this makes sense. And it's in, in fact enshrined in law in many countries that if you buy something, it's your right to be able to fix it if it breaks. You shouldn't be beholden to the company that you have to let them do it. But when it comes to e-bikes, it's a little bit more complicated than that because this isn't just a a simple device without uh, potential for danger. The biggest issue with e-bikes is really related to that lithium ion battery in that if you were to open that up and you defeat some of the safety protections that are uh, built into the battery, it can actually be a potential fire hazard. Um, and, and that's where that's sort of the basis for a lot of these companies saying, listen, we need to have our e-bikes excluded from right to repair. It's just not safe for the average person to go in tinkering inside of our batteries because it could be a potential fire hazard. On the other side, you have a lot of e-bike riders, the consumers that are saying, hey, we need to be able to repair these things ourselves. If you turn this into a monopoly where only the companies can do it, then they're going to be charging us big bucks and you know we're not going to be able to get these things fixed or they're only going to offer recycling programs where 
I've got a battery that's 18 months old. It should last me another few years, but my only option is to recycle it and buy a new one instead of being able to fix this thing. And it's, it's tricky. I can see both sides of it. Um, I think a lot of people assumed that I was supporting the side of the bike companies because that's what I reported. Uh, there were quite a number of ad hominems against me. I will tell you that my personal opinion is that e-bikes should be included in right to repair. I do think that it's important that people be able to work on their bikes, but I also accept the argument that the battery part of it itself is a bit more dangerous and that I would like to potentially see some sort of carve out that would have uh, sort of a, uh, a compromise here where uh, professionally trained battery repair shops would be able to work on these things, but not necessarily that it's made possible for any Joe Schmo to start opening this thing up and, and working on it. Because in fact, several of the lethal fires that we've reported on in the past have been due to people doing shoddy repairs on cheap batteries. And I think that one thing that's important to point out here is that it's not just a matter of a battery being poorly designed that could cause it to catch on fire if you go inside and you make a mistake. You can take a very nicely designed UL listed battery that's passed every safety certification. And if you open it up and you, and you defeat some of those uh, safety precautions, like for example, in that picture there, that blue heat shrink that's isolating the cells, if you cut that open to try and replace a battery cell yourself, you can actually cause a fire by doing something wrong, you know, even just dropping a screwdriver across battery contacts. And so I think that's one of the things that some people don't realize just how quickly a simple mistake can become a potential fire hazard. It's obviously, you know, a touchy subject because people don't want to see these bikes taken away from themselves and, and turned into black boxes that they're not allowed to touch. But there is a safety, uh, a safety issue underlying this as well. Uh, what do you think about this very controversial topic, Seth? Yeah, I, I, I agree. It's, it's got two sides to it and, and there's a lot of gray area. Um, so a couple things, uh, one, uh, I used to fix, uh, Apple Macintoshes and, you know, repair them at a, you know, a Apple certified shop. And even there, uh, Apple would not let us, um, open up uh, CRT displays. So I'm pretty old, obviously, um, <laughs> that they had CRT displays, because even if you unplug those things, they, they're kind of a capacitor and they store a boatload of energy. And if you short that, uh, you're, you're going out, you're going down to the count. Um, I never, it never happened to me, but the guy uh, who was kind of taught me how to fix Apple, uh, Max, uh, was like, you know, I was in the hospital, <laughs> like, cause oh, wow. you know, an unplugged, uh, Macintosh SE or something, uh, basically, uh, shorted on his hand and he, he basically woke up a couple days later. So, um, you know, that's, that's a, a Macintosh that people, you know, kind of, take apart or whatever. So there's a lot of danger, you know, that's, that's not nearly as much energy as, you know, kind of stored in, in one of these batteries. Um, so there's, you know, there's danger there. Um, but the other hand, uh, you know, I had a juice bike that, uh, had a battery short and I called them up and they were like, yeah, you're going to have to take apart the battery. And, um, and, you know, put this new part in and I was like, all right, I'll do it. So I did it like I didn't, you know, there was no like scary parts or, you know, I, I don't think I was touching any high voltage stuff, but I was kind of like, oh, that's kind of weird. Like they're just telling me to open up this battery that, 
and and Juiced is you know of the bike manufacturers they're pretty responsible they you know they're UL listed batteries and um, they make a ton of stuff and you know we, we love their products but I was surprised like they were like yeah just you got to open up the battery and you know replace the the I mean it was it wasn't like rocket science but um so you know I I don't know how safe it is and I know that's a gray area and and it's a, it's like one of those things like. Some people are installing their own electric vehicle chargers, uh, you know, into their walls. Like you should obviously have an electrician do that. But if you feel comfortable and you have some experience there, you know, you can do it like it can happen. So, you know, it, it's it's one of those things where um, it would be nice if the bike manufacturers made their stuff so modular that, you know, if a battery went bad, then you could you know, take it into a, a, you know, a recycle repair shop and they would give you another one and you plop it on and it would work. Um, and that, that does happen to a, you know, a certain extent with like Bosch equipment and, and, you know, some of the more major stuff, but, um, you know, it's, it's just one of those things where like, there's, there's such a temptation to be able to fix something because that that's, you know, fantastic, but there's also this underlying danger that you got to like account for. And if, if you don't know about like electricity and energy and, um, things like that, then you won't feel comfortable. Hope, hopefully you won't feel comfortable in, in taking these things apart because there is some significant danger there. Yeah. And that's the thing is that at a certain point it comes down to, to kind of personal responsibility of people knowing what they're capable of and, and not getting in over their head. You know, anyone can be taught how to safely work on these things. It's, it's the person who's perhaps overconfident and thinks, yeah, it's no big deal and, and gets in there and, and makes a mistake or doesn't even realize what they don't know. You know, I mean, I went to engineering school with, with guys that I don't think knew which end of a hammer was which. Like, <laughs> most people could probably do this, but you got to think about there's a lot of people out there that, that couldn't and maybe shouldn't be doing it. Yeah. And it would be nice if like, uh, you know, maybe the government could step in and start working on recycling programs or repair programs. I, maybe the government's not, that's not the right place for the government, but um, it would be nice if there was like, you know, a, a formal body or, or a place where you could say, Hey, I'm taking in my bike battery. You know, maybe, maybe it's like, uh, you know, one of the bigger e-bike companies saying, Hey, look, we'll take other bike batteries and, you know, we'll, we'll try to deal with them or whatever, you know, like Pedigo or, uh, rad or something uh, with their bike shops and saying, Hey, bring in a bike, you know, from another manufacturer and we'll figure out the battery stuff for you. Not sure what the answer is, but uh, you know, it's going to be, it's, this is going to be a, a point of contention, especially with the battery fires and all the other um, new issues that we have with this, you know, electric bike craze as we, as we uh, refer to it uh, in the media. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it'll be one to watch over the coming months and probably years it will take. Yeah. All right. Uh, moving on, Electra launches its first throttle-controlled electric moped-style bike, fits two riders. This is the Electra Ponto Go, or Go, because it has an exclamation point in the name, uh, as they like to do at uh, Electra. And I'll tell you right off the bat, I love this thing. It's shaped... Something like between a juiced scorpion, a 
uh, Rad Power Bikes, Rad Runner, and a Super 73. I feel like it has sort of DNA of all three of those thrown in there while still being something very unique looking in and of itself. So, you know, it's certainly not a carbon copy moped style bike, uh, but it does carry a lot of those traits. It's got uh, a very pedal forward design, which Electra is a big fan of. That means you can, you know, sit on it with your feet flat on the ground, but you still get your um, legs, you know, further out in front of you to give you a bit better pedaling geometry. It's a moped style bike, so it's not going to be the best pedaler. None of them are, but as far as, as, you know, moped and mini bike style e-bikes go, it looks like it's going to be better than most. Uh, it's got that long bench seat and, uh, it comes, uh, ready for you to carry a second rider on it. So it's got hand grips, foot pegs, uh, back there for a pillion. It's got those fat tires, uh, comes with front suspension, fenders. Uh, it looks like you can probably, um, put on some different storage accessories. And one of the pictures, there's what looks like to be a bag that slides into the negative space in the frame. Um, I don't think they've shown that off yet, but it looks like there are some pretty neat custom, uh, accessories that are going to go with this as well. And it's, it's a big move because Electra has never done a, uh, moped style bike like this. Uh, it's a Trek sub brand. So even for Trek, which is very much a, you know, higher end bike shop, uh, type bike company. So it's new ground for them, but it demonstrates that they really see where the market is headed. You know, there are so many people out there buying these moped style e-bikes that, yeah, you know, they're, they're e-bikes to the, you know, ninth degree here, you know, they got a 750 watt motor. Uh, this one goes 26 miles an hour. So it's well within that 28 mile per hour limit. You know, it's, it's totally legally classified as an e-bike, but it feels more like, you know, a moped or a little motorcycle with those um, larger width tires. And, and of course, the throttle control as well, which goes with all of these uh, moped style bikes. So it's, it's definitely new territory for Electra and Trek. But uh, I, I think it shows that, um, you know, it really demonstrates that they understand what the majority of, uh, of the e-bike market is looking for. Or, you know, if not a majority, then a large section that isn't looking for you know, a fitness bike or, um, you know, just a, a mountain bike or recreational bike. People that are looking for something that's really more of pure urban transportation, bring a friend, bring some cargo on back, that kind of thing. Um, and so I, I love to see this. I think it's a cool design and I'm excited to see, uh, you know, once they start rolling out how these things ride, hopefully we can get one ourselves and, uh, and get an early test on it. What do you think, Seth? Yeah, I, I agree a hundred percent. Like, uh, you can't ignore like the, this form factor. If you're a bike company right now, everybody's getting in. Um, you see, you almost see more of these than you do of regular electric bikes now, uh, just out and about. Um, and it's because, um, you know, with the, the, the smaller fat tires, you know, the, the 20 inch fat tires, um, it opens up a little bit more, uh, you know, opportunity for just cruising around um, with electric bikes, like with a throttle, you know, the opportunity to use a throttle, um, the pedaling is becoming more of a, you know, like a, you know, afterthought kind of thing. Um, and it's just, it's, this is, this is a, you know, a new uh, type of riding that uh, I think people are really, you know, falling in love with. And, you know, obviously the second rider is important. Um, you know, Electra is a, you know, a sub-brand of Trek, as you mentioned, and that's, you know, this is going to be in bike shops and, uh, you know, REIs or whatever. So it's, it's an important, uh, you know, piece of the market. It will be interesting to see how it runs. I'm a little bit worried, like that 750, 
uh, uh, watt motor is going to be a little bit underwhelming. Uh, but you know, it says 26 miles per hour. They wouldn't, you know, they didn't come up with that, like off of a sheet of paper. I'm sure they've, they've gotten it up that speed. So probably that 750 watt, uh, motor goes up to, you know, 1100, 1200 Watts or something. Um, do we know anything else about the motor? Like, is it Bafang? Is it, do we know anything? They haven't shared that. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure if we even can see in the pictures, any markings on it. It could be sort of a, a no name or, you know, I mean, Bafang is one of the most common, but who knows? There's like a dozen sort of mini Bafangs out there. Yeah. I mean, it'll be interesting to see like a lot of people that probably read us and, and watch our videos are probably thinking to themselves like, well, why do I need this one when I can get a, you know, a juiced or a, a super 73 or, you know, any of the aerial rider or any of the hundreds of different uh, brands that are making this kind of bike right now. And I, you know, I would say like, Hey, this is going to be at bike stores. This is going to be repairable. It's going to, you know, carry all the, the Trek quality. Um, and it's probably going to be a little bit more expensive, but not crazy expensive because it's not a Trek brand. It's the Electra, which is the, the cheaper, a cheaper line that Trek has. And yeah, it, yeah sorry, go on. Oh, I was just going to say it opens it up to, to more, more people. Yeah. Well, I think that's a, a hugely important point that you made there is that uh, being able to get dealer support is, is critical for a lot of people. And when you're buying, you know, I mean, this is $2,600, I think, even if you're buying like a, you know, $1,500 juiced bike, a lot of people, they don't want to spend $1,500 on a bike that they can't take into a local shop if they have an issue. But with uh, this being a Trek product, you know, Electra is carried in, I mean, it's probably hundreds of, of bike shops around the country, if not, you know, a thousand shops around the country. So knowing that you've got a, a pretty close by Trek store that you can take this to and, and get service if you ever need it is going to be a huge peace of mind to a lot of people. Yep. And uh, I mean, we should also mention like there's some pretty good deals in this area right now we saw the uh um juiced uh it's not it's not like this form factor it's more like a bmx form factor but um oh, the rip racer yeah they're having the rip racer sale like 7.99 or 8.99 that's on on the site as well so um yeah I, I would say this is a you know really good sign that this is this this form factor and this you know the 20 inch fat tire wheels is like not only here to stay, but it's, it's blowing up right now. Yeah, absolutely. And to me, I just love e-bikes that can carry a second person because the, the biggest use for me for e-bikes is utility. It's like, you know, transport, getting around and being able to carry a second person makes it more than just a personal vehicle. It's, you know, I mean, when you look at cars, they're mostly with one person in them, but the second most popular is two people. So that covers, you know, the two most popular transportation needs. Yep. All right, let's move on. Uh, wide load, uh, extra thick four-wheeled electric cargo bikes to replace trucks in New York. I'm excited about this one. So these are, they look like basically mini delivery vans. Like if you imagine like a UPS van or a, a FedEx van, except that they're basically e-bikes, or at least they have an e-bike drivetrain in them. So, uh, you know, there's pedals, there's a, a bike mid-drive motor type setup. And what you've got is a smaller version of a last mile delivery van. And in New York City, 
Unfortunately, these types of uh, four-wheeled cargo bikes were not legal until uh, this new proposed law change came about. Uh, generally, you were limited to, I think, 36 inches wide and three wheels. So uh, the New York City Department of Transportation has proposed to increase those limits to a fourth wheel and 48 inches wide to allow these types of uh, cargo delivery van bike things. And uh, to me, the, the first thing that says is like, okay, so you, you know, we're used to seeing big FedEx trucks parked in the bike lane blocking it. So now at least the bike lane will be blocked by smaller four foot wide <laughs> uh, bike vans. Which and not totally is, blocked. You can kind of get around these because they're thinner. There you go. Yeah. Like, yeah. Okay. So like maybe you still have to like go out of the bike lane a little to wiggle around it, but you're not going out of the bike lane by eight feet to get around a UPS truck. So already that's better. But for everything else in the city, and especially from the perspective of the delivery companies, these are just going to be so much more efficient you know, being able to get in closer to where you're going, use bike lanes to beat traffic. I mean, how many times do you see a UPS truck make like, you know, 100 feet of progress in 10 minutes because it's gridlock traffic? And yep. this thing is just going to whiz right by. And if anything, it looks kind of fun. Uh, I think the one we're looking at here is from a company called Eve, E-A-V, um, which I think we're going to be able to see those when we're at the IAA show next month in Germany. I was talking to them about doing a electric test ride of one of these bike vans so nice looking forward to that um but all of these just look like such interesting solutions when you know you've got all that storage space back there i mean it's you know not as big as a fedex truck but it's a lot bigger than you'd think on a typical uh cargo bike so to me this is just the ultimate in dense urban deliveries obviously in the suburbs this is not going to work as well but when you're talking about dense cities, you know, New York, San Francisco, Chicago, like, you know, the, the U.S. Is, is covered in dense urban centers. These would just be perfect. Yep. Yeah. And, it, you know, you mentioned the smaller, um, you know, the storage space, but like these things can go back and forth so much quicker that, uh, you know, this, the time, the extra time um, that it takes to go back and forth, it's, you know, you're going to be able to save so much time moving in and out and, I mean, so when I lived in the city, the UPS truck would just park on the sidewalk and get a ticket every day. And he was like, yeah, we just have to pay the ticket. <laughs> like every single day they would just get a ticket. And then that was just part of the operating costs. Oh, that's and, not and a they, solution. <laughs> no, it's not. So um, this will be great. I think, uh, you know, it, we'll, we'll hopefully see a ton more of these things. All right, let's move on. Uh, bye-bye cardboard boxes, recent Mueller's surprising new way deliver e-bikes. Yeah, if you thought uh, bike boxes weren't an interesting topic, wait until you see this. Um, as a way to improve the sustainability of their bike boxes, uh, recent Mueller, which is a very high-end German uh, bike manufacturer, has uh, taken all of the cardboard out of the box. They've basically replaced it with a reusable plastic box that folds down into uh, something much smaller. And then once the bike arrives at the bike shop, it's unboxed. You can uh, then take that empty bike box and fold it down into like this block of plastic. And when you get a bunch of them, they're just sent back in bulk to uh, recent Muller's like supply depot or wherever these bikes come from. And they get repackaged up with, with new e-bikes and sent back out again. And apparently these can be used something like 30 times 
uh, before they need to eventually be recycled themselves. And I guess at that point, they can just be turned into new boxes. Um, but they're also going to be using these not just for their full bikes, but also uh, bike components. So whenever you know someone needs a replacement part or they need to send out new seats and wheels and, and lights and whatever to, to bike shops, they're going to be using this new design as well. And so um, it's said that it's going to replace something like 60 to 70% of their packaging and be a huge reduction in carbon emissions at the same time. So it seems like a, a really cool idea. Um, you know, I, I think in the comments section, a lot of people are asking, like, did they plan for the emissions on these things being sent back? And I assume that was, you know, part of the the calculations here. You know, Germans aren't known for being sloppy with their uh, design work or anything like that. So I, I think they've, you know, accounted for that here. Um, but to me, it seems like a, you know, a pretty cool way to reduce your, your emissions associated with uh, delivery. Now, at the same time, I, I think keeping in perspective, you know, what's driving us towards like climate catastrophe are probably not the boxes that bikes are delivered in. This is kind of a small sliver, but, you know, obviously Reese and Muller can't go out there and like change the oil industry or something. So, you know, doing what they can with what they have is nice to see. And I think it's also a bit inspirational to show that, you know, each industry can kind of look at how they, you know, operate and find ways to improve their own processes. But at the same time, I think we got to kind of keep in mind the bigger picture and the the bigger offenders here as well. Uh, not to be kind of a Debbie Downer here, but uh, just my own personal thoughts. Yeah. And I, I wonder, um, you know, we get a lot of e-bike boxes or bike boxes in general. Uh, the paper ones often have, you know, huge holes where like somebody threw them around. I have to imagine this is a stronger box as well. Uh, it can probably withstand, uh, you know, a couple drops and, and what I, I have no idea what FedEx does, but like for some reason, every box I get from them looks like, you know, somebody punched a hole in the side and like, it just like, it doesn't make any sense why they're so beat up. I mean, you know, and, and, you know, the, the secret in the in industry or the, the worst kept secret in the industry is like, well, let's just put a TV logo on the side and that'll <laughs> save, save the box from getting destroyed. And it does, I think it, I think everybody acknowledges it. It probably does help, but I still get boxes with like these huge holes in, and I just don't understand like, you know, why FedEx, like, are they just throwing stuff off a boat? Like, I just don't <laughs> understand how uh, they, they mess up these boxes so badly. But maybe it's not yeah. FedEx's fault. I don't like. I don't get it. I mean, I imagine they're 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 quite to to blame here. Um, I, I saw an interesting art display recently where there's an artist that's been mailing glass cubes and like uh, rectangular prisms, and then displaying the result of what it looks like afterwards with like spiderweb cracks everywhere and everything. It's it's kind of like artistic, but it. it paints a picture of what this thing went through on its journey across the country. Um, so yeah, I, I totally agree that especially when you're designing the box from the start like this, there's a lot of room to design in the kind of protections that something is, um, you know, valuable as an electric bike and especially a recent molar electric bike would right. need. Um, for anyone who's not familiar, a lot of these e-bikes are in like the six to eight, even $9,000 range. These are not your typical, you know, low end e-bike. So uh, I don't think anyone wants to be returning a $9,000 bike and protection is, is even more important here. Yeah. And I have to wonder if that was part of the, the motivation to make a, you know, a better box um, that, you know, they probably had to replace some boxes that, you know, delivered to the U S 
uh, because you know FedEx destroyed them, and they're like, well, let's let's make a better box, and you know we'll make it out of plastic, but then we'll get to you know we'll get it back. Well, you reuse it. I don't know. Yeah, I think one thing that uh, Reese and Muller has going for it is. I, I imagine most of their bikes are being shipped straight to bike shops as opposed to like, you know, end users like you right. or me, which right. makes this sort of like return system a lot easier for, you know, a company that's doing direct to consumer stuff. It would obviously be a lot more difficult to get these boxes back. And then, you know, producing all this plastic obviously isn't going to be better than uh, cardboard if you're just doing, you know, a single shipment. But, but one thing I have actually noticed from many direct to consumer companies in the U S at least is that, there's a, a big push to move towards entirely cardboard-based packaging, basically replacing all of the foam, where if you've ever you know, opened up a, an e-bike before that you've got shipped directly to your house, usually there is a ton of foam in there. You know, cardboard box and everything inside is foam. So I've seen a few companies, uh, Aventon so far, I think, in my opinion, has been the absolute best at this, where they've replaced basically every piece of foam or plastic in there with something that's cardboard-based. Even the plastic zip ties... They use like fibrous cardboard rope basically to tie everything. And it's just, you know, if, if, if you're not able to do something like what Reese and Muller is doing here, then at least making it all cardboard based instead of foam is, is, you know, the, the best thing you can do because that foam is just awful. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hate like, uh, I hate having to deal with that, that, uh, you know, all that plastic. I will say like, uh, rest in peace, uh, Van Moof, uh, had a very nice uh, recyclable box and um, also had, um, I think, paper-based uh, zip ties and padding and stuff. So, uh, you know, obviously uh, that didn't help them uh, survive or anything, but uh, it was good to see that out there. And, I, you know, obviously uh, we're hoping to see more of the big bike companies uh, go 100% recyclable. If you do, if you're a big bike company and you're listening to this and you're going 100% recycling, Tell us, we'll we'll make a story out of it. We'll get the word out. Uh, we'd like to see it. Absolutely. All right, let's move on. Ninety percent chance of theft causes insurer to cancel plans for one type of e-bike. This one uh, surprised me. So, uh, first of all, a uh, a little bit of background here. So, there's uh, something called the Royal Dutch Touring Club. They're like the largest, I guess, bike agency in. Uh, in the Netherlands, they, they do a lot of things, advocacy as well, education, but they also provide uh, bike insurance. And they recently announced that they're going to stop insuring fat tire bikes in the Netherlands. Uh, and almost all of the fat tire bikes are uh, electric bikes just because it's so hard to pedal these things without uh, motor power. And the reason for that is that they're, they're saying that you're almost guaranteed to get your fat tire bike stolen. Uh, in fact, they say there's a 90% theft chance for these things. And so they're paying something like eight times the um, premiums in payouts to to customers that have insurance on their fat tire e-bikes, which obviously is not a sustainable business model. And they don't just want to raise insurance prices for everybody. So to prevent doing that, they've said that they're just going to stop insuring fat tire bikes altogether which is interesting to me because it points to two things. One, it's interesting how much the Dutch are even adopting fat tire e-bikes because the Dutch have notoriously been very uh, big fans of Dutch style bikes, the kind where you're sitting, you know, very upright. You've got these very large 
diameter wheels, but that have, you know, smaller um, uh, uh, tire widths. And so they're very, you know, urban friendly. They're very comfortable. You got a good view of the road, that sort of thing. But these moped style 20 inch fat tire bikes have become more and more common. Um, here's a picture of a rad runner that I, uh, that I saw on one of my last trips to Amsterdam. And so these are just becoming very, very popular with young riders in uh, not just Amsterdam, but all over the Netherlands, but especially you'll see them in Amsterdam. So it's interesting to see the Dutch really embracing this model. Um, and you'll often see, you know, two riders on these things, just like we talked about how these moped style bikes are great for when you're actually using bikes to get around. Um, but the second thing is just how in demand these are by thieves. And I guess that points to the demand for, for these things because these bikes are often uh, stolen and then resold very quickly. Or in the Netherlands, a lot of bikes are, are stolen and then shipped out to the rest of Europe, especially in Eastern Europe, and then resold uh, on the secondary market there. So it's, it's interesting because I'm not sure that we've seen any sort of breakdown in theft like this before, especially not in, in North America, to sort of understand which are the, the popularly stolen e-bikes. You know, we all have heard horror stories of e-bikes getting stolen. I've unfortunately had a couple stolen myself. Um, but to see any one specific style that it seems to be an extra target for thieves I don't think we've ever seen that kind of data before, but an insurance company that has to pay out for theft would obviously be the best place to go to determine which e-bikes are being stolen. So to me, that was just fascinating. And I'm not sure that I, I would have seen that coming uh, myself. What do you think, Seth? Yeah, 90% seems crazy. Um, I, I, would, I would almost like to see the, the, the data on the back end there because it doesn't seem realistic. Like, you, you know, <laughs> is it 90% of all bikes that are stolen are? I think are they 90%? said that, that fat tire bikes will have a 90% chance of being stolen. My, my question then is like, over what time frame is that? Right. Is that like if you own it Until for forever. a year? Or, <laughs> yeah. Over the, over the time it is, you know, viable, I guess. Anyway, 90% seems quite high. Uh, it, it, I guess it is an indication of what we were talking about earlier, that the demand for these things is quite high, um, that people are stealing them. Um, but also, uh, you know, obviously it's a, it's a problem. I wonder also, you know, the Dutch bikes have those, like, what are they called? The, those locks that are built into the back tire. Oh yeah. I always heard them referred to as Amsterdam locks. Um, right. I think sometimes they call it a frame lock, but yeah, like it, it's, it locks the, the rear wheel to the frame. Right. And, and once you have that, you know, out, I think the bike is pretty immobile. And obviously we're looking at uh, a rad runner here that has a, just a, you know, a big chain lock around. Um, you know, once that chain is off, the bike's pretty much good to go. So I, you know, obviously some of those factors play into uh, the bikes getting stolen. I, but, you know, overall I have to say like, it's just, a, it's just a, a weird thing that the insurance company can't, you know, insure these things. Just, it's just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. Maybe just have an eight times higher fat tire bike policy or something. I guess that'd be yeah. ridiculously expensive. Probably. Or like, you know, maybe you have to have a special like New York city lock or something. Yeah. Anyway, um, let's move on a streamlined two seater electric trike. That looks so cool. Anyone could be seen riding it. 
Yeah, I mean, maybe this this speaks to my definition of cool, but I, I love this thing. <laughs> this is called the uh, Lampago. It's it's basically a three wheeled electric scooter uh, with two wheels in the back. It probably has a drivetrain similar to most like Vespa style electric scooter knockoffs. But the really interesting thing here is that you first of all you're sitting very low. You know, you're not like straddling it as much like a Vespa. You're more sitting down into it. But secondly, it's got a streamliner type um, shell around it. So it, it almost feels like you're sitting in a sidecar of a motorcycle, I would say, except that the sidecar is the scooter. Mm. And it even has a, a rear seat back there. So you can still carry a second rider with you. Um, but you've got this like really fun looking, uh, it's almost like you're like riding around in like a vintage bathtub, almost, mm. I would say. Uh, and they come in all these fun colors too. They're like uh, tritone, uh, or I guess that's duotone, um, bitone. They're two colors, so it's like white on something or black on something with like every color in the rainbow. Um, it's got like a little kind of tri five Chevy feel to it, uh, mixed with weird Italian bathtub scooter. Uh, hmm. I don't, I don't really know how to classify these things, but they just look like a lot of fun. Um, now the performance is not great. It gets up to, I think 28 miles an hour, 45 kilometers per hour. So it's designed to fit into those, um, lower European moped regulations, uh, has a thousand watt motor, which seems like really underpowered for something like this. Not that it goes that fast, but still it doesn't look that lightweight. So I'm guessing the acceleration is not going to be great. And it also has a pretty small battery, uh, 1.8 kilowatt hours, which, you know, motorcycles and scooters don't have as big a battery as an electric car, but 1.8 kilowatt hours is very much on the low end for something like this. So it seems like they probably, you know, in- invested all of their um, XP points or whatever in appearance and not like performance. Um, so, you know, there's something to be said there, but I think if you have a scooter that looks this good, you don't want to be going too fast because you want people to enjoy seeing you go by. So maybe that was, was part that's, of the calculus here. That's charitable. Uh, <laughs> also, uh, I would say like having the, the two wheels in the rear also, uh, you don't want to be going too fast around those corners. Yeah, um, so maybe point. that's a, a safety concern as well. Uh, I mean, yeah, these things do look cool. Uh, like, they look fun. But um, I don't know if I would... I don't know. I, I'd, I'd like to see a video of this. Are, any chance you're going to get a review of this one of these? So uh, there's nothing on the calendar yet. But that's the other thing is that you notice they don't have any uh, marketing pictures with someone in it. So yep. it's a little hard to gauge how it would actually look with a rider. Right, or um, a video even. Yeah, I'm kind of wondering, like, do you just see their shoulders or they're like the whole thing's hanging out and it looks like you're like sitting in a like kid's bathtub kind of thing. That's what I'm wondering. And then that that rear seat being up so high, like, I wonder if that's almost like for when you flip it, when you, you know, when you hit the corner (laughs) going. Yeah, it's like the the bar that saves your neck from (laughs) getting destroyed. Um, Yeah, thank your passenger. Right. Uh, Yeah, and you're a dead passenger. Uh, so yeah, it, there's a lot of questions still here. Are any chance they're going to be at, uh, IFA or IAA? Uh, I haven't heard about them coming yet. It's a, okay. uh, Turkish manufacturer that, uh, okay. I think is intending to sell in Europe. So there's a chance they'll be there, but I haven't heard any news of it. Okay. Well, it's certainly, uh, weird and thought provoking. Like, uh, I, I, 
like to see more about this, obviously. So for that, it's yeah. good. I love the uniqueness. I'll give them that. Yeah. All right. And finally, uh, I just bought a super cheap electric bike from China. I wouldn't recommend it. So this is a um, sort of an odd little electric bike called the Mihogo. I found it on Indiegogo, which I'm going to give you that warning right away. This is an Indiegogo. And the reason I wouldn't recommend it is because this is not as much buying a product as it is backing a project to create a bike, which is what crowdfunding is. You know, you you help a company um, basically complete their project, which in this case is this bike. And then in return, you're supposed to get whatever they pledge as the reward, which in this case is uh, an electric bike. I actually sprung for the the Mihogo Pro, which is not the super cheap $397 one. It's the slightly nicer $447 one. And I'll tell you again, right right away, I do not recommend anyone doing this. Uh, for me, sometimes I find these like fun, weird little e-bikes that I just think are so cool in the fact that they're so unique looking. And it's an adventure for me to sort of like you know, put down a little bit of money in this case, you know, less than 450 bucks. It's not going to destroy me. Um, if it doesn't come through and it's probably not enough for my wife to actually kill me, might be (laughs) slight bodily damage. Um, but it's actually a really neat design, which is why I kind of want one of these things. Uh, it's got this split frame, which you can see there, there's this bag hanging down, uh, below the frame. And so you can actually like store stuff right between your knees because the frame is in sort of two pieces there which is neat because it's such a small bike, you wouldn't think it comes with storage, but right there you've got a, a cool option. And then there's accessories for like the the rear seat, the front basket. I didn't get any accessories. Uh, I didn't want to like risk that much for this thing. I figured I'd just go in for the the bike itself. Um, and uh, and there's one other thing that I found funny. It's been a while since I've done an Indiegogo or, you know, pledged to to hopefully buy one of these things and i see they've added a uh, a tip feature now like you'll see it all these um you know like drive-throughs and stuff but the tip doesn't go to the company it goes to indiegogo as if you're you're tipping them for allowing companies to get started on their platform so and, weird uh, yeah right and they suggest a 50 dollar tip now you can set that back to zero which like i'm not helping you guys Why buy another you? boat yeah but they don't make it easy to do it. You got to go through and find like choose other amount. It's not obvious. So, anyways, if you do buy something on Indiegogo, um, there's no reason to to tip their executives. Uh, make sure you reset that to zero. But the bike itself, I'm very excited about this. It says it's supposed to come in October. Um, I do not believe there's any chance it will come in October. But I am pretty confident that I will at least get it. I think I put at the end of the article that like, it's not coming in October. If it does, I'll ride it down the street wearing a, a frilly tutu. So, um, oh, wow. and then someone commented that like for that, probably the manufacturer will just make sure they crank one out and get it to me in time to, yeah, they'll to send you a prototype video. basically. <laughs> um, I, I'm not tutu shopping yet. Cause I don't think I'm, I'm at risk of them being on time. I've done two other bike kickstarters before. Uh, or Indiegogo's, uh, both of them, I did get the bike. One was like a Xiaomi mini bike. And the other was the tiniest e-bike I've ever seen. It was kind of like a folding thing. These were both in like 2019, 2020. So, uh, a long time ago, it's been a while since I've done one of these, but I think it's fun to, you know, because I, I happen to have this platform and it's a chance for people to sort of understand what it's like to back one of these and the, you know, the trials and tribulations of, of going through with one of these sort of unknown bike companies. So um, 
the, for the third time, I will say the disclaimer, please don't do this. I do not recommend this. Don't risk your money because I did it, but maybe we can all enjoy watching me do this and hopefully getting a bike out of it. Yeah. And you never know, maybe you're backing the next big thing here. There you go. Uh, I mean, a few years ago, I wrote a, a post about all the big bike companies that got started with crowdfunding and you'd be amazed how many, um, you know, Juiced, Rad Power Bike, Super 73, a lot of these big names that we know of today is like, you know, the Goliaths of the, the e-bike industry got started on, on Kickstarter and Indiegogo. So, you yeah. know, it's, this happens to be sort of a no-name um, bike, but those other ones were once no-name bikes as well. Yeah, and I think the form factor is, is something to think about because, you know, a lot of people want the smaller form. Um, it, obviously with the foldable uh, handlebars there. Um, you're going to be able to put this in a car. You're going to be able to, you know, put it in a very small part of your garage or, you know, in an, like an, in a nook in an apartment. So I think, I mean, I think it's a hot area. Um, you know, I've seen, we've seen bikes a little bit like this from, um, you know, like Swagtron, which, you know, I think they just go in, into China and do some shopping and they're like, Let's put our logo on that and that and that. And uh, so we've seen some stuff a little bit like this. I think you've even reviewed like the EB1 or yeah, something like that. Uh, but it, you know, this has some, some nuance to it. That battery looks quite big. We've seen like in <clears throat> other marketing materials, they have like a little uh, kid riding on the back. Um, that's certainly, uh, you know, this would be appealing to a lot of people, I think. Um I don't know how it would perform. Like those wheels are quite small. It's a little bit like a glorified scooter in that respect. But um you never know. Like this could be could be a big thing. Yeah, and I mean that's that's what I like about it is that it is innovative in a way. You know, it's not just like a rebadged out of a, a you know Chinese catalog e bike. It actually has a, a new design. Um that battery you mentioned, it actually is really big. It's seven hundred and sixty eight watt hours, which wow. is kind of crazy yeah right like that's 48 volts 16 amp hours uh and i paid 447 dollars now that's i don't crazy. have a bike yet so maybe i donated 447 dollars but if it shows up i mean you could i mean the battery itself battery. would be three or four hundred bucks usually right oh yeah yeah i think a juiced battery is like 500 bucks here right uh so yeah uh it'll be interesting to see how that goes uh we're not going to see a review in October, but hopefully uh, sometime soon after that. Yeah. And if we do, it'll unfortunately probably have me in a tutu at some point. Oh, man. That would be worth the, uh, the price of admission alone, I think. <laughs> the air shipping of the bike. <laughs> right. Uh, all right. That's uh, all the stories for today. Let's have a look at the uh, comments. Uh, it looked like we went big on LinkedIn today. So we got a lot of those. A lot of highs and goods and hi so hi everyone um vernon sherwood what about modified lithium batteries and their potential for fire hazards uh that's kind of a theme from this this gentleman uh, i don't know if he's being genuine but uh you know generic like obviously uh, lithium batteries are are dangerous we know um we have somebody from the congo uh so anybody's looking for uh some Distributor in Kinshasa. There you go. Um, Seth will be very familiar with right to repair due to Apple's history of battling it. That's true. Um, 
we worked with a company called uh, I Fix It. I think I Fix It, yeah. Uh, that that does a lot of right to repair stuff as well. Obviously, they have uh, skin in the game, but the, uh, Kyle over there has been really uh, big. I mean, we're talking like uh, getting stuff passed in Massachusetts and and other places. So, um, and the reason you know uh, Tesla has to publish stuff, for instance, about their their cars because Massachusetts has, you know, right to repair laws. Um, so yes, this, this is a, a big thing from Apple world. Um, Vernon Sherwood again, battery packs could be made repairable if designed from the factory with that intention. Uh, that's one thing I wanted to ask you, Micah. I know you've, uh, in the past, uh, had, uh, kits, um, that you can kind of build your own batteries. Is that something that like, uh, you know, a battery company, I mean, this is something that Mike and I have talked about. Um, like we should build a battery that's, that can be used in e-bikes and also, you know, lawn equipment and it's standardized and, you know, all the good stuff. What is your, what are your thoughts on like, can, can that be built? Can we build a battery that's, you know, modular or repairable or designed from the factory in that, in that way? Yeah. The, the trickiest part is really just, isolating the connections on the end of the cells so like the idea of making a kit where like you could sort of like pop cells in and out um or that these batteries could be designed this way by the the bike manufacturers it's it's definitely possible the tricky part is anytime you're exposing the end of the battery cells you just you just have to make sure you're not exposing the ends of other cells because the most common dangerous situation is accidentally bridging between two different cells and it's it's so common and easy to do on accident i once picked up a battery this is many years ago before i got into battery building i was holding it in my hand and all of a sudden my hand started getting really hot and i realized <laughs> my wedding band was bridging two uh ends of of cells so i was basically short circuiting the battery on my wedding ring so like even just silly mistakes like that it's so Yikes. easy to do gotta yeah, get a so. uh, non-conductive uh, wedding ring there <laughs> Yeah, or gloves and not be an idiot yeah. like I was. Um, yeah, so like, obviously, you know, that was a long time ago before I, I learned about battery building, but these are the kinds of things that, that people don't realize. So uh, to get back to the question at hand, yeah, that certainly can be done, but the, the hardest engineering part of it is finding a way to make the ends of these cells accessible without making more than one of them accessible at a time to prevent that from happening. Yeah, and uh, you you are... You mentioned in the in the, the channel that um, I should talk about the Talaria. Uh, so um, while I was gone in Japan uh, for three weeks, um, Luna sent me a Talaria XXX. Um, basically, we got home from Japan at like you know midnight, and I started putting it together at like one a.m. So um, and I had it together within like fifteen or twenty minutes with my son, my fourteen-year-old uh, son's help. Um, that is a fun game changer of a, a bike. Like, there's a lot of questions about the Talaria. Uh, it's from Luna. Um, and we're going to go, you know, I'm going to go deep in it on a, in an article, but like, where is it legal? It kind of fits nowhere. And there's, you know, you cut a cable to make it go faster if you want to. We're not cutting the cable quite yet. Um, but um, that's, that's something we're going to talk about in a couple, couple more articles and, and podcasts. Um, we should also mention that uh, if anybody's in Germany, uh, I guess in the week and a half, 
Uh, we're going to be at the IAA Mobility Show uh, in Munich, and I'm also going to be at the IFA Show in Berlin, um, and that's going to be next week. So uh, if anybody's out there, uh, come say hi. Moving on. Not, not to put yeah. you on the spot, but will you uh, you have one of those posts ready by next podcast? Our listeners will be able to hear about that Telaria next uh, time? Yeah, I probably can't just because I'm leaving for Germany in three days or four days. Mm, but okay. um you know, maybe that's something I can write on the on the plane or something. But uh, just just know that you know, two days into it or three days into it, uh, it's a phenomenal vehicle. Like it it feels like one of those like moments in time where like things kind of change. So you know, as a background, it's a three thousand dollar. I think Luna raised it to like thirty two hundred, but still, you know, an incredible deal. You know, there's there's e bikes that you know go. 20 miles per hour that cost $3,000 and it comes with, um, kind of street tires, which is the big controversy because it's not street legal anywhere, especially when you, once you cut that red or brown cord. Um, so this thing goes up to like 45, 50 miles per hour. Um, like quickly, uh, it, it'll even wheelie if you're not careful. And I found that out, uh, at the Luna factory. Um, it, uh, and it, it's a it's a quality uh, piece of machinery. Like it's it's got like a um, RFID uh, starting thing. So, for instance, we have the RFID keys hidden so that my son doesn't just take it out and go go crazy. Um, so it's it's actually like a pretty impressive kind of setup. Um, but we'll get into that in a future podcast and, and in future stories. Let's get back to the uh, to the uh, questions here. Vernon Sherwood's back. If it wasn't for the highly flammable lithium, but none of these light electric vehicles wouldn't even be possible. Yeah, it's only highly flammable when bad things happen. Um, so I kind of feel like that's kind of a loaded comment. Uh, Kevin N says UL certification, battery recycling and repair will become more and more important in the market. I think that's true. I mean, it's it's so important already. Uh, Oregon e-bike bike Mark says good morning. Uh, seats look soft. All right, moving on. Mario Madness easier to take on bus or something if needed to. We're talking about this the small uh, electric oh, my bike. My Mihogo, yeah, yeah. I actually I mean, just I, took my um, my Rad Power bike on the train yesterday, and um, I think for anyone who's taken bikes on public transportation, you know, it's not as much the weight as is the bulk that is the problem. And so having that really short wheelbase with little wheels. I think will make a big difference on the bus or the train. By the way, I just thought of this. Uh, do we have any e-bikes lined up for IAA? Uh, we should look into that. Yeah, yeah. We have to get around. <laughs> get out the uh, Rolodex here. Um, I saw recent Mueller's there. Um, Rosa Bosch um, Specialized, I think, has a big thing. So maybe we should uh, make some inroads there. Maybe the Specialized, the new uh, cargo bikes. Yeah, Those would be absolutely. fun to ride around, actually. Um, and and we're in the same location downtown or the old city, and we have to get to the the new city. Hopefully, we don't we don't wreck like we did <laughs> two years ago. I think each one of us wrecked separately uh, oh, one yeah. time. Uh, too much fun. All right, and and so your little b- bike uh, would be how, how much does that little Chinese or that little uh, Indiegogo bike weigh? I think it was like 30 something pounds. Oh, that's pretty um, good. Especially with that huge battery. 
Yeah. Oh, here I found it. It's it's actually forty three pounds. So, okay, still uh, not, solid, not super light, but yeah, certainly doable on the bus. Yeah, and yeah, uh, the battery is worth that alone. I think we also came to that conclusion. Bubble Magic is a Yuma, a scooter brand worth trying. Good value, but concerned about quality control. Any thoughts? Do you know about Yum? I'm not familiar with that brand. Not a yeah. good sign. Yeah, probably not a good sign. Uh, a lot of these brands are just. Uh, going to China, coming up with a brand name, making a sticker and slapping it on. Uh, so be careful of that. All right. All for the I comments. Think, yeah, that does it for us uh, for this week. It was great having you guys. We'll be excited to uh, be back here two weeks from now with another episode of the Wheelie Podcast. We'll see you next time, everyone.